Job 42, and we'll read the whole chapter, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not, things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, and that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did according as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money, every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. After this lived Job, and hundred and forty years saw his sons, and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. The end. Tonight we'll look at final lessons from the final act. Of course, we've been treating this as a piece of literature and kind of uh, putting the headings in that kind of an order, but it, even though we're speaking about final lessons from the final act, it's not an act. Right? This is reality. This has been reality. Now, often the final act will be referred to technically as the resolution. Resolution. And there's resolution here. In a resolution, there are conflicts that are resolved. Tension and anxiety for the readers is released. And there is this satisfying sense of closure experienced with the final act when, when it's a play. Well, we do find all of that here in Job 
42. There is a great deal of resolution that unfolds. And I don't know about you, but I find this chapter very satisfying for a number of reasons. Now that doesn't mean that every trial ends like Job's does. But let's be honest. No one else's trial is like Job's. Not every trial ends like Job's does. Not every trial ends with problems solved, with hardships softened, with friends all forgiven and everybody living happily ever after. That rarely happens. But there's resolution here. And it comes, well, it comes largely in the form of another R word. There's not only resolution here, but there's restoration here. Things are being restored back to the way they were before. Of course, one of the things that uh, we point, what needs to be pointed out is that you have, first of all, the restoration of Job's fear. You say, his fear. Earlier in this chapter, chapter 42, it's not, it's his fear of God that is restored in a way. It was said three times in the first two chapters of this book. God pointed him out and he said, a man that feared God. A man that feared God. Now, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say that he lost all fear of God throughout his trials. I don't think so. But by the things that he said in his speeches, we didn't read them. We didn't have the time. But in the things that Job said in his speeches, he, there was something about the fear and the awe of God that was diminished. And that's why, as we looked at last evening, that's why God directed Job to his power, to his might, to his dominion, to his control over all things, and to his wisdom, to overwhelm him with a, with a fear of God, of who God is. And that's that. now the reaction to that is in chapter 42, Job falls before God and he says, I repent in dust and ashes. And so there's a restoration of his fear. You can see that... He, I think it's hinted at at the end of chapter 41. If you look at just two verses, if you back up two verses from where we started reading tonight, it'll take you to chapter 41 and verse 33. And God is concluding his description of this creature, Leviathan. And here's what, here's what it says. I'll read it in the ESV. God, God says about Leviathan, On earth there is not his like a creature without fear. Without fear, a creature without fear. Hint, hint, is that you, Job? You're a creature of mine. Are you a creature without fear? Is that you? Do you not fear me? Now, Job's response after all this is to bow down and to repent in dust and ashes. He has a, a renewed, a restored fear of the Lord. And as we read in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's actually the beginning of lots of things, but one of them is for sure. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And now, when Job got right with God, and I'm not saying that everything was wrong, but because he responds this way, things weren't right. When Job got right with God, so much else around him got right too. So you have the restoration of Job's fear, and then you will have the restoration of Job's friends, starting in verse 7. Now, it is nice to read these verses. There's a, there's a sense of satisfaction where God is, is rebuking his friends and telling them, you were wrong all along. All those charges that you made against my servant, they were unfounded. You were in the wrong. And he is, he is in the right. 
So you'll have the restoration of Job's friends, restoration of their relationship with Job, and even in their relationship with God because they had treated God's servant this way. I think in these verses there's a good, uh, I think it's a, it's a good recipe for restoration to take place between people that have been torn apart by sin. There's four things that I found here. Four things that comprise the recipe for restoration to take place between people that have been torn apart by sin. The first thing is gentle correction. Gentle correction. I notice how God corrects these three men. If it were up to you, and if it were up to me, after hearing what they said, how gentle would you be? God's very gentle with them. I imagine, that, I imagine that the three of them have been standing there or sitting there or whatever. Their arms, have been, their arms are crossed. Their brows are furrowed and they're waiting for lightning to proceed from out of the whirlwind that has come. Right? Because God spoke to Job. They're waiting for lightning to come out and, and thunder down judgment on Job. For he has dared to withhold a secret sin against God and he will not confess it. And so they're waiting for bad stuff to take place. No bolts ever fell. God said, verse 7, My wrath is kindled against you, Eliphaz, and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job has. So no bolts are going to fall on Job. And relax, no bolts are going to fall down on you either. But he says his wrath is kindled toward them. God is angry. And yet, God is gentle with them. He just says, you've not spoken of me the thing that is right. You remember when they thought Job was wrong? Remember when they thought Job was wrong, how they abused him? The things that they said? The insinuations that they made? The allegations that they made? When they thought that Job was wrong, what did, how did they treat him? Now God says, they're, no, if he's not wrong, you're wrong. How, how is God going to treat them? Should he treat them the same way? No, God doesn't do that. God gently corrects them. You have not spoken to me the thing that is right. They did not... He, he, notice he says... You did not speak of me the thing that is right. You were, rep you were speaking, representing me, speaking of my character, who I am, my attributes. And you were, you were not accurate in how you spoke of me. You know what that tells me? That God obviously cares very much how he is presented. That God cares very much how he, how he is pre preached. And if there is to be restoration... If there is to be restoration then between you and that other person, whoever that is, only gentle correction can accomplish it, not some loud, angry rebuke. So there, there's gentle correction here. But along with that, there was also willing sacrifice. There had to be a sacrifice made. Look at verse number 8. God says there, Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job. And offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. Wow, I wonder how that, how that sounded. They were, they were thinking they were going to be the ones to pray for him. He says, my servant Job will pray for you. Because he's been in the right. And for him, I will accept. I'll listen to him. 
And if you get in the right attitude, maybe I'll listen to you too. But for him, I will accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, and that you have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. So the three of them did, according as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord also accepted Job. So what did they do? They had to, they had to bring the sacrifice. In order for a relationship to be restored, there had to be a willingness to sacrifice. They had to offer something that was costly to bring about that restoration. And I know this is basic Christianity, but I think it's good. It'll always cost you something to be made right with other people. It'll always cost you something, right? It'll certainly cost you your pride. That's a good thing to lose anyway. It'll certainly cost God something to make us right with Him. He gave His Son. It cost Christ something. He gave Himself. Christ also hath once suffered for sins the just in the place of the unjust. He suffered for sins that he might bring us to God. In order to, for us to be made right with God, it cost God something. It cost Christ something. And in order for us to be made right with one another, there's always going to be a tremendous cost and a cost that's worth paying, no matter how high it is. Gentle correction is needed. Not this is what you did and did. Gentle correction, a willingness to sacrifice, to yield, to listen, to give up your rights. The third thing, open confession. Now the text doesn't explicitly state their confession to Job, but I don't doubt that it happened. Uh, Job, what would, what would you like, uh, what do you think Job would have liked them to say to him? What do you think he would have liked them to say? You ever, have you ever apologized to somebody? Or somebody apologizes to you? What do you want them to say? I've been in meetings before with people. One sitting across from the other. Let's get this all out, right? I'm sorry. And they're ready to bolt out the door. They said it. right? Is that going to... You, you honestly think that's going to accomplish anything? I mean, it's a start, right? What do you think they wanted to... Job, Job, some of those things that we said, you know, maybe weren't exactly true, some of them. Uh, some of them were. What would you, what, if you're Job, what do you want them to say? Job, we shouldn't have said those things. Job, will you forgive me for the way that I spoke to you? Job, will you forgive my arrogance? Job, will you forgive my audacity, right? Job, will you forgive my abuse? I'm sorry for insinuating that about your children. I never should have gone there. I am sorry for that. People, people that have been hurt, they want, they want to know that you get it, that you understand what it was that hurt them. And it has to be articulated, right? And, and I'm sorry, and an extended hand is not going to cut it. You want to be restored? Confess openly and specifically. Now there's another thing. There needs to be gentle correction. There needs to be a willingness to sacrifice. There needs to be open confession about what wrong has been done. And there needs to be full forgiveness. Look at verse 10. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. When he prayed for his friends. He prayed for them. Do you think Job forgave them? 
Hard to pray for someone and not forgive them if you're really praying for them. It's hard to it's hard to hold grudges in the presence of the Lord, isn't it? It's hard to pray that God will forgive your friends and not forgive them yourself. Job prayed, and God heard him. And I don't think he prayed the way I might be tempted to pray for them. My servant Job will pray for you. Yes, I will. <laughs> Lord, remember Bildad. Give him what he deserves, right? Lord, Bildad the shoe height, right? Make him about a shoe height's tall, right? Zophar. Lord, remember Zophar. Smite him so far to the ground, he'll never forget him. I don't know what kind of things that would come to you. But that we can kind of pray very vindictively, right? They did this to me, and Lord, some of our prayers end up sounding like uh, the imprecatory psalms, right? The, the calling down judgment against our enemies. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. Job prayed for them. God heard them. Must have been, must have been a man that was willing to forgive. So those four things seem to make up a good recipe for how to be restored to one another. So there's the restoration of Job's fear, and he falls before God and, and repents of his attitude. There's the restoration of Job's friends. Number three, there's the restoration of Job's fortunes. And we'd like to read this too. He had, by the time the chapter comes to an end, it says that he has 14,000 sheep. He had seven. He has 6,000 camels. He had three. He has a thousand yoke of oxen. He had 500. He has a thousand female donkeys. He had 500. And obviously, I don't think suddenly, poof, there they were out in the, out in the pasture, right? Or out in the field. Probably was, these were things that may have taken a while for Job to accumulate over the years. But right away, and this is so like the Lord, right away something happens to put Job back on his feet. Remember, he's got nothing. He's got nothing. He's got no assets. He's got no, nothing in the bank, right? Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, There came unto him all of his brethren, all of his sisters, all that had been of his acquaintance before, and they did eat bread with him in his house. And the end of verse 11 says that everyone gave him a piece of money. And everyone earring of gold. They took what they had and they saw a man that had nothing. He was broken. He was financially ruined and they all came together and huddled together and put together what they had and they sacrificed that Job might get back on his feet. And he knew then that he was surrounded by people that loved him. Right? One of my favorite all-time movies is It's a Wonderful Life. We were talking about this at lunch today. Interestingly enough. And uh, if you're familiar with it at all, George Bailey runs the, the building and loan in town. But he wants to get out and see the world. One disappointment after another occurs, and it looks like George will be stuck where he is for the rest of his life. in Bedford Falls, and he wants to get out so bad it's not going to happen. The action largely takes place in, it's set in the 1940s. And one fateful day, his Uncle Billy, who works for him, he's kind of absent-minded Uncle Billy, goes to make the $8,000 deposit in their bank account. And he takes the cash and folds it up in the newspaper. And old man Potter wheels himself, the, the greedy, 
wicked old man Potter wheels himself into the bank and Uncle Billy's talking to him and he rolled up the deposit and put it in the newspaper and put it in Potter's lap and he didn't even realize it. Well, the loss is uncovered and George is overwhelmed with grief. He, uh, he says this means prison. This means scandal. This means jail. That's what's going to happen. He's totally ruined. He's lost everything. He can't get it back. And he ultimately heads to the bridge to throw his life away into the river. So he's there at the bridge and he's about to jump in and somebody else jumps in. And it's Clarence. Some of you have seen this, right? Clarence goes into the water. And George says there's a man jumped in. He jumps in and he saves Clarence. Well, Clarence just happens to be an angel that's sent to stop him from throwing himself into the river. And Clarence shows George what his life would have been like if he had never been born. That's one thing George says. He says, you know what? I wish I'd never been born. Clarence says, really? All right, George, you've got your wish. You've never been born. And just like that, everything changes. And suddenly he realizes what his life, what life around him would have been if he hadn't been there. And it's an ugly life without George. The town is corrupt. Many of his friends are immoral. His wife is an old maid. His, son, his brother that he saved when he was a child is now dead. And he sees his tombstone with the date on it. He can't bear it any longer and eventually he wants his old life back at any cost. And when George runs back from the bridge to his wife and kids... He can't believe what has happened. His old life is back. And everybody recognizes him. But of course he's still broke. He doesn't realize the whole town has turned out to help him. And a big basket is brought into the room. And everybody's arriving with a piece of gold. Or some coins. Or a pocket watch. Or some bills. And that basket is filled way over 8,000. And tears run down his cheeks as he thinks about how much he has loved. This part of Job reminds me of George Bailey. Everyone comes to his house. A piece of money. A piece of gold. A word of comfort. A sympathetic, sympathetic embrace. And there's the restoration of Job's fortunes. But that's just a very, very small thing compared to the compassion and love that has surrounded this man on this day. There's the restoration of Job's flesh. I think. Again, I couldn't find that in the text, but it would be hard to imagine him still sitting there scraping himself. I don't think so. Doesn't need the pieces of pottery any longer for that purpose. The boils are gone, the fevers are finished, and Job can finally rest. But lastly, here, there's the restoration of Job's family. Verse 11, they're all coming. All his brothers, all his sisters, all that have been of his of his acquaintance before. I think there's an implication there. Who's there? Bildad. So far, Eliphaz, maybe even Elijah. They were his friends. Same idea, right? Even they're here. And they're all together. But they're, all his family is here. And his brothers are there. His sisters are there. His friends all forgiven all restored to Job, and they all together in the house. That's a good ending in a number of ways. It makes me think of another house. It makes me think of another house. It makes me think of the Father's house. The place where we're going, where I'll be, 
there with my brothers and sisters in Christ, with you. I might not ever see you again once I leave tomorrow, but I will see you again. We're all going to the Father's house. Those who are our dearest friends on earth, together with them there, and the dearest friend of all, the Lord Jesus, the friend of sinners, will all be there, forgiven, restored, together in the Father's house. That would be a great reunion. And then look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. It says there, He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first Jemima, the name of the second Keziah, the name of the third Karen Hepic. And in all the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job, and their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. Hmm. Family gets larger. Seven more sons and three more daughters. God doubled everything he had. So he didn't give them twice as many children. That's because he already his children that died weren't lost. They were in heaven. Now he has ten more. I, I don't know that I can prove this. But I just happen to think that maybe they were even born in the same order. Maybe not. But seven sons and three daughters. I don't know that it hit them right away. But after child number 10 is born, hmm, seven sons and three daughters. God is good. He doubled everything he had. He doubled his children. Job had ten children in his house. But he also had ten children in God's house. I have at least one little one in God's house. God has given me five to look after here. Maybe you do too. You've got one there. Maybe you've got more than one. Those little ones are not lost. They are safe in the arms of Jesus. There's resolution here. There's restoration here. But one thing that overwhelmed me as I've been looking at this final chapter is that there's revelation here of who God really is. God had not revealed himself at all in the book. And then as he speaks, he says some things about himself in his speech. But here in the final chapter, there's a revelation of God here to Job that is precious. What does God reveal about himself? Well, for one, well, there's a revelation of God's power. God's power cannot be limited. God's power cannot be limited. Look at verse 2. This comes from Job himself. He says in verse 2, I know that you can do everything. I know you can do anything. There's nothing that God cannot do. There's nothing that is beyond Him. Job Job ponders all that God had said about His creative power in those earlier chapters. About His creative power, about His controlling hand, about His caring ways. And he cannot help but conclude that God can do anything and everything. Whatever you're going through today, God is not sitting in the heavens wringing His hands wishing that He could do something about your situation. He could. He can. He can do anything and everything he pleases. So relax. God is in full control. God's power cannot be limited. Now Job's not finished. In the end of verse 2, he says, God's purposes cannot be thwarted. No thought can be withholden from thee. 
ESV says no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You can't stop God's purposes. We might question, we might complain, we might rebel, but we can't change or alter God's purposes for this world or for our lives. And so let him do in your life what he pleases, for it will be for your best. God's power can't be limited. God's purposes can't be thwarted. There's more that is revealed about God's character in this chapter. God's ways cannot be fathomed. In verse 3, I think it's the International Standard Version that says, Job says, I have talked about what I don't understand. I have talked about what I don't understand. Awesome things beyond me that I don't know. God's ways cannot be fathomed. Sometimes we're just never going to be able to understand what God is doing. That certainly makes sense. Because his wisdom is infinite. And mine is not. Sometimes we're just not going to be able to know. Knowing God's ways may not help any anyway. Even if he said this is what I'm doing, that doesn't guarantee that you'll be satisfied with what he's doing. So it's best to just not know what he's doing. You might be only more confused. God knows exactly what he's doing. The other thing is this. We might not even be capable of understanding his ways even if he explained it to us. I think about Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways cannot be fathomed. God's justice cannot be dictated. We, that's what they've been trying to do this whole book. This is what God is doing. This is what God should be doing. God's justice can't be dictated. We can't tell God what to do, and we can't, can't tell God when to do it, we can't tell God how to do it. Sometimes we think that that's what praying is. Right? That's why I'm praying. I'm telling God what to do. It's okay to ask for things. It's another thing to try to dictate justice. God is the judge. We don't have to play the religious police officer. Keep up with everything that's right or wrong in my world, in your world, in everybody else's world. By the way, people don't like religious police. They're never popular in any society, and they're certainly not popular in the assembly. When people go around and say, this is the way it has to be. God is capable of bringing justice. God's justice will prevail. God will make everything that's wrong right someday. He will do it. He may not do it in this life. And that's very disappointing to us sometimes. And it's very frustrating to us sometimes. He may not do it in this life. But every life, every person will have to stand before God someday. And he will deal with it. In everyone's case, everyone will stand before God and give account for every word, for every deed, for every thought. Rewards will be given. Rewards will be lost. Wicked will be punished. Righteous will shine like the sun, right? God's justice will roll down and it, it will come. So refrain from trying to bring it about and let him do it. God's justice cannot be dictated. Now there's one thing that I'll end with as far as a revelation of God here in this chapter I've enjoyed the fact that God's blessings cannot be equaled God's blessings cannot be equaled just think about everything that he did for Job at the conclusion of the story 
He's given a double portion, right? Everything was doubled. You okay with that, by the way? Say, yeah, yeah, Job went through a lot. I'm, not, I'm okay with that. Are you? Is it okay for Job to have as much as he did? He had a lot before. He was the most wealthy of the men of the East, right? And now he's going to be double that? You okay with that? Think about it. Because there might be people that you know that have a lot. You okay with that? Are you? What if they were now what if they woke up tomorrow and they're twice as wealthy? Still okay with that, brother? Sister. Mm. No, I, I just thought of that. There are times when the Lord blesses his own with what looks like way more than enough. Why does he do that? Well, for one, he's good. God is good. And God is righteous. But it might it might be just as much a test of your contentment as it is of their stewardship. It might be just as much a test of my contentment with what I have as it is a test of their stewardship. So you say, well, well they have all of that. They should, they should be doing this with it. And they should be. Here we go. They're, they're, you know, the justice police. Here's what other pe- how other people sh- should live and what they should do with their things. And they have all of this. Why don't they do this? And why don't they do that? Are you content with what you have? Their stewardship, they will have to give an account for. Your contentment, you will have to give an account for. Don't envy. Let it go. Proverbs reminds us that, maybe you don't even need this reminder, but envy is the rottenness of the bones. You want to wither away from the inside out, just start down that road of envy. So he was given a double portion. God blessed him in that way. He was given, he was given another family. He lost his family. God says, I'll give you another one. wasn't too young either. I'm not sure how old he was. I think some some writers think that Job may have been around 70 years of age when all of this started to happen to him. And I imagine that Job's wife comes to him a little bit after the fact with a little bit of a smile. And she says, "Uh, Job, not going to believe this, but... We're expecting. What are we expecting? Rain? (laughs) We're expecting. Oh. (laughs) Another child is coming. And in the days to come, this would happen nine more times. Do you wish you got that kind of opportunity to to do things again? Some of you say, no, I'm glad to be done. I'm glad to be done with that stage of my life and I'm ready to look at... That's what grandchildren are for, right? You can pass along your wisdom about raising children to your children to be a blessing to their grandchildren. And they love it when you give them lots of advice. (laughs) Good advice. But I, I thought about this. You know, Job got a second chance to raise a family with all of the added wisdom that he had accumulated over those years, right? And he did a good job. I, to me, it's fascinating that so much attention is paid to the daughters. Right? You don't read it, hardly a thing said about his sons. But his daughters are named. We're, we're, we don't know any of the names of the sons. But we have these three women recorded for us, and their names are given. Why? Expected to name the sons as well, but we don't know what they are. The implication is, is that Job did such an honorable job 
raising his family, that his sons and daughters were all women and men of respectable character. In that day and age and in that culture, the focus was always on the men. Job wasn't that way. He focused on all of his children. And they were all honorable men and women. In the land, in all the land, the text says, in all of the land were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. That just doesn't mean that they were nice looking. Maybe they were. It means that they were, their character was beautiful. There was none so fair as the daughters of Job. You know what I think was the key to their remarkable character? Probably because they were raised in a home where there was no favoritism. Look at the end of verse 15. Another insight here says, Their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. That wasn't too common. He did, that wasn't too common. He says, no, you're all equal to me. You're all, get, you're all going to receive something. You're all going to have an inheritance. There was no favoritism in the home. And Job got a second chance. And he made it. He got it right. You know, sometimes God gives us a second chance. Maybe he doesn't give us a second chance with children. Maybe he does. I don't know. But God does give us... God is the God of the second chance. And if we're honest, the third and the fourth and maybe even on and on, a second chance to witness to that person that you just didn't have the courage yesterday to witness and now there's another chance. God is good. A second chance to take a stand for Christ. When you miss the opportunity earlier. A second chance to make things right with that brother with that sister. And maybe even a second chance tonight to do that because you've just heard ministry about it. A second chance. A third chance. God is the God of the second chance. He was given another family. He was given a double portion. Lastly now, he was given a long life. Verse 16 tells us just how long. I don't know. Sometimes this isn't too appealing. I don't know how much longer we want to be here, right? Job lived 140 years after this. I think that's why people think he might have been 70 when it happened. Because if everything else was doubled, maybe his life expectancy, he was given, he lived for 70 and now he's given another 140. 140 years after this, and he saw his children and his grandchildren until the fourth generation. Fourth generation. Uh, the Septuagint has Job living for 240 years. I don't know if that's right. Uh, some have 210 years. If, if he was about 70 when these trials occurred, then he got to see his children, his first group of children. He got to see his grandchildren. He got to see his great-grandchildren and maybe even great-great-grandchildren, depending on what four generations means. I guess you could say that when Job's trial was over, he really did live happily ever after. That's actually how the book seems to end. Now that might not be entirely realistic. Happily ever after to an extent. He was still on this earth. He still had his sinful flesh. He was still surrounded by sin and by sinners. And he would see, if he's going to live 140 more years here, he's going to see plenty of injustice in the rest of his days. He could only be so happy here. When our days of trial are over, what a land we're going to.
No flesh. No failure. Won't be a possibility. No sin. No sorrow. No tears. No temptation. That'll be good. No temptation. No tragedy. Mr. Warren wrote this hymn back in 1911. I like the chorus. But I like the verses too. Maybe you heard of it. When my life work is ended and the summons has come, when my voice there is blended with the blood washed at home, in that happy reunion where they're waiting for me, with my Lord in communion, oh what bliss that will be. When my life work is ended, when my toiling is past, when the Lord has descended, I shall see him at last. I'll regret not my suffering, nor my sorrow and care, when I rise to the glory that awaits over there. But the last verse. When my life work is ended, I shall leave all behind. But the righteous ascended, oh, what wealth I shall find in those bright realms of glory where forever I'll dwell with my Savior and loved ones, where we'll sing all is well. And the chorus, home, beautiful home, free from sorrow and care. Loved ones beckon me come. Soon it's glories. I'll share. That's where we're going. That's where we're going, brother, sister. And there it really will be happily ever after. <clears throat> Keep your eyes looking ahead. In the midst of trial, sorrow, suffering, and pain, we're going home. And that's where there really will be resolution. And that's where there really will be restoration. That's where there really will be a glorious revelation of God who he is, and his son, our Savior.